The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. This is God's word. Amen. Well, as you just heard, uh, we're going to be taking a break, a little short two-week break from our sermon series in the book of Galatians. So today, we're going to be starting a little sermon series called The Heart of Making Disciples. Um, We'll be concentrating on that subject today and then next week, and then I believe it's the last week in March, we'll swing back into the book of Galatians and we'll start there in uh, verse... uh, Six, I believe it is, in Galatians chapter 3, and we'll begin to continue our push through Paul's letter to the Galatians. But this morning, uh, as you just heard, we're going to be concentrating on a pretty famous Old Testament text out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And what we're going to notice this morning is that Isaiah is going to have a very, very, very radical encounter with the living God. And it's going to have a very specific, a very direct effect in his life. It's going to affect him in such a way where having seen this sort of vertical, blinding vision of who the living God is, and as that blinding vision gives him a clear vision of himself, causing him to confess his sin, find grace from the grace-giving God, It's going to have the drastic effect of a willingness, an immediate willingness on the part of Isaiah to be sent out essentially as a proclaimer, a witness of the grace he has received. And so we're going to fight to make that connection this morning from the Word of God because I think this, what we're going to see in Isaiah, is going to be a proper motivation for us in maturing as disciples who are called to make disciples, okay? So we need to pray right now. Um, This isn't the John Davis show. Um, We're here to see Jesus. Um, And if you go into the Upper Room Discourse and the Gospel of John, 
One of the things Jesus says about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit loves to put the limelight on Jesus. He exists to go, hey, it's not about anybody like us. It's all about Jesus. And so that's what we need right now. We need the empowering presence of the Spirit to put the limelight on Jesus as we consider the text before us this morning. So I love what Pastor Tom says. This isn't a time to sit by passive, but I'm going to ask you to actively engage the living God right now, to go to him in prayer, to say, we need you. It's one of our last prayers we prayed for globally. Like, we need you. We're not striving into this moment right now because we can get it done. We're striving in this moment, fully recognizing our inability to get it done. And that's why we need him who can make, make it get done, the spirit, okay? So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for sending the helper. In the upper room discourse, you told the disciples, it is to your benefit that I leave. Because in my leaving, what actually happens is there's a coming. And it's the coming of the helper. The spirit. And as we saw last week, for those who've been justified by faith in Christ, they have received the Spirit. We've been signed and sealed with the Spirit. And this morning, like we saw last week, we're begging you, God, as we turn to the Word, that you would help us to hear by faith this morning, supplying that empowering presence of the Spirit so that we would have eyes open to see Jesus so that we would have minds open to understand the scriptures before us. God, this is one of those Sundays where I wish I just had better words to articulate the splendor of the holiness of the living God we're going to consider this morning. But I know this morning my feeble tongue will fail to impart even a thumbnail scratch of the immense, infinite, overwhelming glory of the grace-giving God that has saved us. And so I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would move in a way that would manifest the glory of the living God so that we could leave here saying, did not our hearts burn within us this morning as we considered the glory and the grandeur of the God who rules on the heavenly throne, high, exalted, lifted up? Spirit, I'm asking you to blow us away this morning in such a way we would leave changed having considered the words of Isaiah who received that blinding vision of the high king of heaven. God, open our eyes to see you as big this morning. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. We say this every Sunday. It's uh, the mission of our church. It's one of the last things the gathering pastor will say. It's our time of exhortation. We tell you this every Sunday, that we exist as a church for the body of believers that gather here. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples. This is the mission 
of Delta Church. And as men and women who have anchored themselves to this body of believers, we say we exist to make disciples. And by that, what we mean is there are people who are not followers of Jesus. They're not disciples. And God has entrusted the gospel to us so that we can go out as witnesses bearing the truth of Jesus to these people so that they would go from being not a disciple by being made into a disciple because they've heard an articulation of the gospel, they repent of their sin, and they place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. We exist to do this. We're called to make disciples. We're called to mature disciples. Once those disciples have been made by the power of God, we are called to teach them to walk in obedience to Jesus, and we are called to multiply disciples. We gather on Sunday mornings, and we scatter throughout the week in community groups. We scatter throughout the week in discipleship relationships so we can encourage one another then to live out our faith in Christ in the world around us. We exist to make mature and multiply disciples. If you were to ask, what has God called this body of believers to do, this is the answer. Make mature, multiply disciples. If you remember, it was a couple of years ago that we saw the need to begin focusing heavily on that first aspect of making disciples, which gave birth to many things in the life of our church, one of them being this sermon series that you're experiencing right now. If you remember, it was a couple of years ago that we began by recognizing that if we are going to be a church who makes disciples, then we must begin by asking God to give us a heart of compassion for the lost. If you remember, we concentrated highly on Matthew chapter 9 where it says Jesus, the great shepherd, looked out on the crowds that were coming to him and he saw them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for the lost that were around them. We can beat the drum all day long to go and proclaim the gospel to people who need to hear the gospel, but if you just don't care, you're not going to go and do it. If you see people around you as a nuisance, as you see people around you to exist, to serve you, you are not going to lay down your life to go and share the good news with someone else. You just won't. So he said, if we are going to start fighting to make the culture of this church an evangelistic, gospel-sharing, disciple-making church, we've got to start off on that first footstep, compassion for the lost. And so if you remember, we emphasized this drive, this biblical idea by asking ourselves the question, who's your for? You guys remember that? Who's your for? We said the assumption is as you walk into the regular rhythms of your life that there's lost people around you. And there's probably at least four lost people in the world around you. And we said, God, give us eyes to see who are four people in this world that I can begin to pray for, bang on the doors of heaven, as it were, so that God would give me a heart of brokenness and compassion for these lost people that are in my world. And then last year, what we did was we made a necessary next step. And it was a step of recognizing this that it's good and right for us to pray for God to give us a heart of compassion for the lost. But as we do so, we also need to see that compassion alone is not enough. There's a lot of people who have been compassionately loved, and we've compassionately loved them on their way to hell. We were compassionate, had a care for them. 
but we never actually articulated the gospel to them. We never called them to respond to the good news that Jesus is a Savior who died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead so that sinners can place their faith in Christ and know they can have life eternal with the Son who has defeated Satan, who has defeated sin, and who has defeated death. And so we have compassion for them, but we never cross that pain line of articulating the gospel to them. And so we said yes to compassion. Compassion is good, but faithful witnesses not only pray for the lost, they not only pray for God to give them a heart of compassion for the lost, but they also intentionally invest in others so they can take those God-given opportunities to invite the lost to hear the good news that Jesus is a Savior who saves sinners. And if you remember, we drove that idea forward by keeping the phrase, who's your for, but then we begin to articulate this desire and this drive to go, okay, what does it look like for us to cross that pain line into a conversations where we're investing and inviting, was the phrase we kept using over and over again, investing in the lives of others, caring for them with compassion, asking God to bring opportunities to be able to share Jesus with these people. And now this year, as a church, our aim is really to continue in this same vein by focusing on this idea of intentionality. Going from who's your for to investing and inviting is an intentional act. There's intentionality woven into that very idea. And so what we're going to do this year is, as we're continuing to press forward this need to mature as disciples who are called by Christ to make disciples, we're going to keep pressing on that idea of intentionality, intentionality. If we're going to mature as disciples, you make disciples, then we must grow in what it means to be everyday people who intentionally bring Jesus into everyday life. The key word there that should be pinging you right now is intentional, intentional. You see, so often we shy away from sharing Jesus. We shy away from being a witness because we view it as that additional thing that we just simply don't have time for in our busy schedules and the busyness of our lives. But so much of what we see in the Bible is average, everyday people bringing Jesus into the regular rhythms of life. And so as you're going around at Aldi, if you're going to Hy-Vee, if you're going to work, if you're grabbing a coffee, if you're doing CrossFit, if you're, if you're, if you're, it's wherever you're bumping and rubbing shoulders with people in the world around you. So much of the Bible is not, hey, Jesus saved you, now add this additional thing. It's, hey, as you go now, as a redeemed man, as a redeemed woman, what does it look like for you to simply go, hey, I'm going here today, I'm bringing Jesus with me. I'm going to look for those opportunities to be intentional in this moment to share Jesus. Far from additional, the Bible absolutely sets up this idea of being intentional. Being intentional. Now, all this sounds great. Cool phrase, right? Everyday people who intentionally bring Jesus into everyday life. Sounds phenomenal. Sounds great. This whole being intentional idea. But listen, the reality for most of us me being the chief, is that we're just simply not intentional about being intentional. For many of us, intentionality is not a priority. When push comes to shove, 
our day-to-day lives are marked more by hindsight than they are by foresight. And what I mean by that is this. You get up in the morning, you roll out of bed, your feet hit the floor, and what's your mind begin to do? For most of us, it's a straight reach for the phone because we're Facebooking, we're emailing, and immediately it's a to-do list. I got to get ready. I got to eat. I got to go to work. I got to do the shopping. I got to take care of the kids. I got to drop off the kids. I got to pick up the kids. I got to go. I got to go. I got a checklist. I got a checklist. I got to do. I got to do. Then the next thing you know, it's 10 p.m. and you're laying your head down on the on your pillow at night, going, "Man, like earlier today, that would have would have been a great time to have done this. Man, when that person interrupted me at high V, that would have been." That should have been, that could have been. So much of our life is a day late and a dollar short. It's hindsight. We look back and go, man, in that moment would have been a phenomenal time to have said something about Jesus. That's hindsight Christianity. And I'm the chief of sinners when it comes to this. So much, unfortunately, my life falls into the hindsight category. Foresight Christianity looks like this. You get up in the morning and what you do is say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Then you say, I need you now when I'm getting ready for work. I need you now dropping off the kids. Give me eyes to see the world today like you see the world today, Jesus. I know I'm going to be dropping off the kids this morning. Holy Spirit, is there somebody you want me to talk about, talk to, about Jesus to this morning? I know I'm going to be going to the grocery store later today. What if we went in with that foresight saying, Holy Spirit, make me sensitive to the reality that I'm a witness. I've been entrusted with the gospel. I'm going to work today. I'm going to talk to my neighbor today. I know my schedule. So how can I roll into those situations with the spirit radar, as it were, pinging all these opportunities to be a witness for Jesus in that moment because those people in those moments aren't unreached for Jesus because you're there. It's the difference between hindsight and foresight. So if this is true, that intentionality for so many of us is not a priority. We're just simply not intentional about being intentional. If this is true, the question I have for myself often, the question I have for myself this past week, the question I have for all of us this morning is this. If you can nod your head and say, man, guilty as charged, Intentionality is not a priority in my life. Me being an everyday person who intentionally brings Jesus into everyday life, that that is just simply not the overarching priority of my life. The question I have is, how can that change? How can that change? How can we go from not being intentional about being intentional to being intentional? about being intentional. To put it in another way, if we are going to be everyday people who intentionally bring Jesus into everyday life, then from where does proper motivation come for being an intentional witness? Where does that proper motivation come? See, you and I can have all sorts of motivations for the things that we do, some good and some bad, especially when it comes to being a witness, sharing Jesus, But my argument this morning is that Isaiah chapter 6 is where we need to go into the Bible because we're going to see a picture of what proper motivation looks like for sharing Jesus. You see, there's an intimate connection between beholding the glory of the grace-giving God and living as an intentional witness for Jesus. 
When you go into Isaiah chapter 6, what you're going to find is this. Isaiah is going to be spent. He's going to go out. The end thing, when you roll out of verse 8, what do we find? We find Isaiah going, being spent for the glory of God. We see him going out saying, you need an intentional witness? Sign me up on that list. And the question is, how did he get there? And what we're going to see is the motivation wasn't because people are going to hell. The motivation wasn't because... God commanded me to do it, coerced me into doing it. It's not because some pastor came up with a clever phrase, everyday people living intentionally, bringing Jesus into everyday life. It wasn't because of that. What gets Isaiah into verse 8, into the place where God says, I need to send somebody who's going to go for me? And he says, sign me up on that list. It happens back in the starting in verses 1 and going forward where he sees a mind-blowing, blinding vision of the living God who brings grace, undeserved grace, to a sinner. And he says, I've witnessed, I've seen, I've experienced, I I can tell you no other thing. I know what I'm going to be talking about. And then off he goes into a life of ministry. That's what we're going to see as we chew on these verses here. So as we roll into verse 1, Isaiah chapter 6, the first thing that we're going to see is this. Isaiah is going to tell us about a time when he saw the glory of God revealed. He's going to tell us about a time when he saw the glory of God revealed. Look at what Isaiah writes beginning there in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord Now, you know that you've read this story, Christian, too much. If those words, I saw the Lord, just roll right off of you. He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Furthermore, above him stood these creatures called seraphim. Each had six wings, he tells us. Two wings, this seraphim, seraph covered his face. Two covered his feet. Two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. You see, there's days in your life when things change, and they change in small ways. And then there are days in your life when things change, and you know because of that change you're never going to be the same. And for Isaiah, these verses describe one of those life-will-never-be-the-same moments for him. He tells us that there was a day when he was going about his business as usual. Church day, let's go hit the temple, let's go and worship And so he heads off to the temple to worship God when when he goes into the temple, suddenly he's lifted out of time into eternity. He tells us that it took place in the year that King Uzziah died, which was a defining moment in the life of God's people. Under the reign of King Uzziah, God had lavished success on his people, but true to form, the people of God fell in love with the gifts rather than the giver, and they fell into a a a culture and a lifestyle of just sin where it's just like, yeah, we want the God stuff in our life, but we don't want him so into our life where we have to walk in obedience to him. We want the blessing, we don't want the obedience. 
And so the crazy thing with King Uzziah is he was a phenomenal king. You go read places like the books of Kings and in Chronicles. When you read about Uzziah, it's near Solomon-level restoration. Like things are going really, really good. And you can tell that the vibe of those places, like in the books of Kings, the book of Chronicles, that the people were going, hey, listen, this is good. Our hope is in Uzziah. Our security is in Uzziah. If he is on the throne, then life will be good. Then he messes up. He strives too far, he goes into the temple, he offers worship that he's not supposed to, gets struck with leprosy, then all of a sudden he's dying and he's dead. Where's your hope and your security now? Isaiah goes to church on that day and God says, listen, the king may be dead, but the king is alive, ruling and reigning on the throne. And so as the earthly king lay dying, Isaiah perhaps is going to church going, man, what's going to happen? The guy in charge is not in charge anymore. This is going to go bad. Things are going to start going downhill. If he is not in control, where is our hope? Where is our security going to be? And as Isaiah goes to church on that day, he receives a big vision of God, which reminds him that the absolute sovereign, the king, the Lord of hosts, was reigning uninterrupted on his throne, high and lifted up, so much so that the train of his robe is sitting there filling the temple. You see, what Isaiah saw in this moment was the throne room of the high king of heaven. And as heaven and earth merge into this blinding vision, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who speaks life into existence with the power of his word, the one who sustains all creation for his glory, the one who is exalted in his supremacy, ruling in the heavens as he pleases, there he is, says Isaiah, sitting on his throne surrounded by an immeasurable myriad of these things called seraphim. I think Isaiah can't quietly describe what they are because the word seraphim just means burning ones. He's looking at these creatures that are like living flames. And he tells us that the looping soundtrack of praise from these seraphim is the song of heaven, the never-ending holy glory of the king, the Lord of hosts. As one brother put it, these burning ones are living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. And their forever song is this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Repeat, 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 repeat. It's just never-ending praise from these burning ones. Praise offered up to the one who is worthy of this kind of unceasing adoration. You see, holy glory, this is what the song of heaven is all about. God is infinite in his holiness, and he is all-encompassing in his glory. And it's as the supreme commander of angel armies receives the proper adoration due to his name, there's Isaiah present. Heaven and earth merged together in that single moment with a blinding vision of the living God receiving the unceasing praise that only he is worthy of. And he's witnessing the whole thing. And when a person like Isaiah witnesses something like this, when a person like Isaiah comes to behold the holy glory of the living God, one thing becomes Absolutely clear. God's holiness 
will expose your uncleanness and reveal your need for his grace. That's what God's holiness does. That's what God's holiness does. God is holy and can have nothing to do with sin. Can't. And here's Isaiah all of a sudden caught up, heaven and earth merge, and he sees God in the splendor and the majesty of his holiness, and it makes complete sense that he would turn around and then say next, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm lost. Some of your translations have the word lost translated as ruined. I'm ruined right now. I'm undone. I'm unfit right now. Why? I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes, listen, are you guys paying attention? My eyes have seen him, the king, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Notice that the glory vision Isaiah received produces an instantaneous deep awareness of his sin. Like he doesn't walk away confused right now. Like I'm not really quite sure what this feeling is that I'm experiencing on the inside. He's not doing that. He sees God as holy and he instantly goes, ah, I'm not holy. I'm not clean. I'm impure right now. There's something manifestly wrong with who I am in sight and in light of this holy glory that I'm witnessing. Watching the pure praise of the seraphim, Isaiah can only draw one conclusion. Unlike the seraphim, I ain't got clean lips. I don't have it. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The blinding vision of God's grandeur has given Isaiah a clear vision of his sin. You see, this is what happens when God pulls back the scales from our eyes and we witness the splendor of his holiness. This is what happens, Christian, when you get saved. If you have not seen the utter and absolute sin-stained depravity of your soul in light of the holiness of who God is, I would dare say you haven't quite seen him in a saving way. Because when you have your eyes stripped open to the holiness of who the living God is, it exposes the very core of your wrath nature that you deserve from God. It exposes your wickedness, it exposes your evilness, it exposes your proclivity to sin. That's what holiness does. And it's happening to Isaiah, and it brings him to the place where he says, I've seen the Lord high and lifted up. I now have an acute awareness of my uncleanness. God's holiness has exposed my unholiness I'm stained by sin. I'm steeped in sin. I'm lost. I'm ruined. I'm unfit to be in God's presence. And so he utters the prophetic woe. Woe is me. Woe is me. You see, the religious of us will go out and say, woe is you. Woe is you out there, all you not doing what God has said. The gospel man, the gospel woman says, forget about you. Woe is me. I've seen myself in the mirror of God's holiness. I've seen myself in the glory of his grandeur, and I am undone. So now when I go out to you, I don't go with an accusatory finger of woe is you. I go with to you with compassion, knowing that you, 
like me who are worthy of woe can find grace from the high king of heaven. And so I'm going to you now as a witness saying, listen, I'm telling you, brother. I'm telling you, sister. I'm telling you, co-worker. I'm telling you, neighbor. There is hope for you in your state of woe. See, that's gospel right there. That's the good news of grace gripping somebody. We blurt out, woe is me. Woe is me. But notice, rolling from verse 5 into verse 6, that it's this blindingly clear vision of Isaiah's sin which sets him up for that profound experience of God's grace. Listen, if you don't think you are in a state of woe, God's grace you don't give a rip about. God's grace is for those people who are ate up, messed up, who need a crutch, who need a little bit of religion, who need all these things. But when you have that eye-opening vision of, oh, no, (laughs) holy, not holy, I've got a problem. Because if I try to enter into a relationship, if I try to do anything with this holy one, I will be obliterated. Because his holiness can have nothing to do with my unholiness. This is the problem of Christianity. How can a holy God have a relationship with an unholy sinner? And the answer is Christ. The God-man. As God coming down, taking what we deserve as man for sin, standing there, 1 Timothy says, as the mediator saying, I can represent God to man and I can represent man to God. The cross is the answer to this Christian conundrum. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Christ. And when you come to that place of seeing with blinding clarity, oh no, woe is me. Woe is me. You're in the place you need to be. You're in the place you need to be. Because when you find yourself in that place, the experience of God's grace is It's right around the corner. Because when you are driven to your knees with a woe is me, you're going to only look to the place where someone can say, "I I can do something about that woe. See, it's only after he's confessed his sin, notice, after he has confessed his sin, that this seraph peels off from his flight path from around the throne Right, verse 2, they're flying all over the place. Isaiah sees, woe is me. One of these seraphs peels off from that flight path. Beelines right to Isaiah. Flies to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he has taken with tongs from the altar. The seraph touches Isaiah's mouth with this burning coal and says to Isaiah, behold... This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, verses 6 and 7, there's a whole lot of strange going on here, right? I mean, can we just agree with that? You're like, what on earth, man? Flying angels, tongs, burning coals, lip touching. Like, what's going on around here, man? Like, that's not my average everyday experience. I'm just assuming that's not your average everyday experience. Right? Getting caught up into the heavens and having a vision like this. Like you read this and you're sort of like, what's going on? Like angels, burning ones, coals. Listen, don't miss the point for all the strangeness. 
Isaiah is simply telling us that he was cleansed not by his own efforts, but purely by the grace of God. Verse 5, woe is me. God doesn't go, you know what? You actually qualify for grace now. Like you earned something here. You've done something. You've put yourself in the place because you did a little extra day. You said a little extra prayer in the temple, these sorts of things. No, 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 no. He sees God, sees himself. He says, woe is me. God says, I am going to bring grace to you. Not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it, but because I am the high king of heaven who delights to give grace to those who know their utter and absolute undoing, their woe in their sin. To use Galatians language that we've been talking about the past couple weeks, if you want to transport that back into this moment, right now, Isaiah is going from condemnation to justification. He rightly, the woe is me, is him rightly agreeing with God, I deserve condemnation right now. I deserve to be eternally separated from you right now. But my hope of right standing in light of verses 6 and 7 is the fact that God comes by grace, moves him from condemnation to justification. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is, I'm unholy, I'm unclean, I don't deserve to have a right standing with you. God says, by my grace, I'm going to save you and move you from condemnation into justification. By my grace, I'm going to take away your guilt. By my grace, I'm going to atone for your sin. And now you do have a right standing with me because I've declared it to be so. That's grace. And when the magnitude of that grace, notice, touched Isaiah quite literally for him, notice that he was awakened to live for God. Isaiah, this is not what happens. Going to church, worshiping, blinding vision, living God, woe is me, cold touches, grace received, peace God, I'm going to do the Isaiah thing, and he just rolls on doing his own thing. Not what he does goes to church, blinding vision of God, exposes his utter sinfulness, woe is me, grace comes, and he says, sign me up. Who else needs to know about this thing? Who else needs to know about this thing? It's almost like God is saying there in verse 8, when you roll into verse 8, and he says, listen, I heard God saying to me, whom shall I send who will go for us? Notice the Trinitarian us that you can go back into Galatians 1 and find. Who's going to go for us? I think we often in this moment look almost like God is looking around at a bunch of, bunch of people, you know, and he's like, I'm looking at a bunch of people, but he's like doing this right on Isaiah the whole time. I wonder who can go for us, Isaiah, not saying it's you, but I wonder who can go for us, you know. I think what he's doing this. It's like there's a little bit of a rounding of a corner. Isaiah is sitting there saved. He's been experienced. He's been ransomed and redeemed by the grace of God. And now all of a sudden, God in the fullness of the Trinity is saying, listen, broad proclamation. Who's going to go? Like, I need a witness around here. I need someone who's going to go. Everyone, like, I got some things to say to the human race. I need a spokesman, but I just don't need anybody. I want someone who knows what it means to be forgiven. I want someone who knows what it means to be undone and then to be redone by the grace of God. And Isaiah's like, man, I don't know about it. Me. Me, me, me. Immediately. An immediate willingness 
to be spent for the glory of God because he's witnessed the grace of God in his own life. An immediate willingness to be spent by God because he has witnessed the grace of God, experienced the grace of God in his life. So he says, send me, whatever the cost, God, spend me for your glory. Have you ever asked God, send me? Send me. Christians, I'm talking to you right now. Those of us who would say, Isaiah's experience is my own. It wasn't a whole vision, flaming lip thing, but I have had a true vision of the holiness of God. It undid me. I was crying out, woe, and in that moment, God opened my eyes to see the answer to my woe is the resurrected king. And by faith, I look to him. He is my only hope of salvation. If you're in this place, my question for you is, have you asked God, where are you sending me? Where are you sending me? Now, for some of us, that's freaking us out a little bit because you're like, man, I'm going to end up like in Timbuktu, man. Like, if I ask God that question, man, like, it's immediate. Forever missions in Africa. Like, right, I'm going to Asia. There's no... Or it could just be this. God opens your eyes to the neighbor across the street from you, and he says, listen, I've entrusted you with the gospel, brother. I've entrusted you with the gospel, sister, so that your neighbor can now have a witness for Jesus because they're not unreached for Jesus anymore because I've just saved you and you are the missionary who's going to bear Christ to this person. And so have you just asked God, God, are you like, them? Is it this coworker? Is it this barista? Is it this lady who checks me out at the grocery store? Is it this family member? Have you ever asked God, God, where are you sending me? See, that's the proper response of someone who has been saved by grace. I mean, what else can there be as a proper response? It's like Isaiah is saying, send me. Like, what else can I do right now? Like, what else could better occupy my time right now? I've seen, I've experienced this. To use the words of Peter and John from Acts chapter 4, verse 20, I cannot speak of what I've seen and heard. I cannot but speak of this. Like, I must. There's an oughtness to it. It's burning within me. I've got to go and do this. You see, for those of us who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, there's just no two ways around it. As we said earlier, there is an intimate connection between beholding the glory of the grace-giving God and living as an intentional witness for Jesus. Living as an intentional witness for Jesus. Remember, my argument this morning is that the proper motivation for us as those who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone is that being a faithful witness that stirs our heart is saying, I look out at my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, and I see that the worship that alone should belong to God is being attributed to everything but God. And the worship that has now been awakened in me by grace, the eye-opening experience of God and his glory and his grace, the saving grace that I know and experience, I want them to have the same thing because they were designed by God to know and live and experience that eye-opening, woe is me, grace kind of experience. 
And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to, by God's grace, not perfectly, but by God's grace, begin to ask God, please, please move me from hindsight to foresight. Because I've experienced this thing. For some of us here, you're like, yeah, I've been saved, but I've sort of lost that vertical vision of the Lord. The answer isn't get your act together. The answer to the grace you've received is to ask God to shower grace upon grace. What you need is just a fresh vision of the grace you've received. So what you're going to begin to do is this, God, (laughs) your grace, I know we're just saying it's not enough, but my heart sort of thinks that grace is sort of, hmm, I've lost sight of the grandeur of your grace. So that my so hear me, Pastor John speaking to you. What I'm not saying is whip it up. Read the Bible a little bit more. Go to church a little bit more. Just pull yourself up by your boots. What I'm saying is ask God. God knows. God knows what's going on. Just say, God, your grace has become a bit dull, a bit matte in my life. I need you, God, to overwhelm me, re-overwhelm me, and continue to overwhelm me with this holy glory, this saving grace. Because as that fire gets kindled in your soul, guess what's going to happen? You will champion what you cherish. You'll begin to champion what you cherish. And as God stokes the flame of cherishment in your soul, you'll begin to go through average, everyday life bringing Jesus, having those eyes. So here's how we're going to end this morning. We're going to end with a time of prayer. We're going to pray for two things specifically. Uh, Charles, would you mind just coming up, brother, and doing doing a little stuff here? Because we're just going to I'm going to ask us to pray um, in a corporate way. Here's what I want us to do: the heart of making disciples. My guess is you're somewhere this morning on this spectrum, okay? Where um, either you have not been saved by grace because you haven't seen how utterly undone, unfit you are. For you right now, this time is for you to respond to God saying, God, open my eyes to see how woe is me I truly am so that I can then see how much I need Jesus, okay? For some of us, we have been saved by grace this morning. And so my first prayer is this, and you might want to jot this down in a little quick note thing because I'm serious. We're going to take a couple minutes. We're going to pray corporately in this way. I'm going to ask that we pray for fresh eyes to behold the glory of the grace-giving God who has saved you. Fresh eyes. For some of us, the reason why Christ is not on our lips intentionally in everyday life is just because we've lost sight of the blinding good news of grace. And so what we need is for God to give us fresh eyes to behold this glory of grace. That's prayer one. Prayer two is going to be this. I would love for us to pray about being an intentional witness. Next week, we're going to have a time to respond in a fresh way to that question, who's your four? We're going to do that again next week. For some of us, those four that we started praying for a couple of years ago are still in our lives, and that's good. For some of us, things have shifted and changed, whether it's jobs or life, or maybe you've moved or whatever it might be. And so this is going to be sort of a reset where we're going to come back and say, God, you've entrusted me with the gospel. Where can I go? What four in my sphere of influence are you calling me to be an intentional witness to? Intentional witness to. And trust 
that God the Spirit is bigger than you. He's working, drawing people to Christ. And then as we tune our ears to the Spirit saying, Spirit, help me to see so I can be that witness to them. Give me eyes to see. Tune my ears to hear. Please, Spirit. Because in the weeks to come leading up to Easter, we're going to make a grace-driven effort to be active and intentional as a body of believers towards those people whom the Spirit is pinging us to go and be an intentional witness toward, okay? Two things. Pray for fresh eyes to behold the glory of the grace-giving God. That's the prayer for those of us who are just like, you know what? Intentional about being intentional, not on my radar. That's the prayer for you. For the rest of us, all of us, Pray about being an intentional witness. Let's ask the Spirit to reveal four people in our lives who need at least an intentional witness for Jesus so we can go to them and articulate the gospel to them. Ask it and then listen. Let's pray. Father, my prayer right now is that as we begin to do these things, God, that you would stir within us, rekindle within us, Give us fresh eyes to behold the glory of the grace-giving God who has saved us. Father, for those here who are not saved, not, not born again, their eyes haven't been awakened to the utter reality of their woeness. Holy Spirit, I'm asking that like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, you would knock them down and you would... And you would rip those scales off their eyes to see you, the living God, in their utter and absolute need for you. By the power of the high king of heaven, I am asking that you would do that now and you would save lost people. For those of us here saved by grace, God, I'm asking just for that fresh vision to behold the glory of the grace-giving God who has saved us and that this grace fuel would be thrown onto the hearts of those who are here and what would be fanned into flame and what would come into combustion is a heart that is set on fire to go and proclaim and be a witness for Jesus, bringing him into everyday life, those normal rhythms of just where we go. And that this would be the proper motivation of our heart. Father, for others, maybe we have some people in our lives where it's like, man, I just know like God has called me to be that, that witness to them. But for some of us, we just, we don't know. So I'm asking now, Spirit, that you would open our eyes to reveal at least four people in our lives who need an intentional witness for Jesus. And then now as we go into a time of prayer and a time of response that maybe we just need to sit. Maybe we don't need to stand. Maybe we don't need to sing. Maybe we need to, like one of the very last things we do is take the Lord's Supper. But what I need to do is hear from the Spirit. Spirit, who are you calling me to go to? Here I am, send me. Who are you sending me to? God, help us in these things. Your name, your glory. Amen.